glad that we're whispering about it. <laughs> Good morning, guys. Welcome to Brookview. Super glad that you're here this morning. I have announcements for you. Um, what are they? I took a screenshot because last week wasn't so good, especially that part when I said, you probably won't like it here. Go away. <laughs> Who says that? I don't even know. Well, my screenshot didn't work, so I'm shooting from the hip and follow me, Johnny. Let's do this. Um, this coming Tuesday, we have our delivery um, that we do monthly for Vision House in Cedar Way. And um, as of last check, which was like Saturday morning, we had still had quite a few items that we were in need of getting. And so maybe you guys all signed up on Saturday night. Um, but if you did not, we would love, love, love to be able to complete those lists of um, commitments that we make to people that are helping people in our community through um, helping with homelessness and education and everything around that. And then at Cedar Way Elementary School, we partner with them to give them some fresh produce um, and some groceries every single month. So thank you in advance for those of you that faithfully do that every single month. We are just so grateful. But that's coming this Tuesday. And if you're able to help and you want to see that digital list, you just text the word helping to that number behind me. And that will push that list forward, I really, really hope. Um, you can drop items off on the side of the building right here during the week and get those here by 10 a.m. on Tuesday morning. And then we head off um, to our places that we go to, to send those to. So this coming Tuesday, it's Cedar Way and Vision House. Um, in a couple of weeks, so next, a couple, one week from today, um, we have Ignite, which is Brookview's family meeting here. Um, we meet together here, and the kids have a pajama and popcorn and movie night together next door. Um, but our Ignite, it, this family meeting, is just a chance to hear about what's going on around here um, and just kind of how is God moving and where are we headed and celebrate the things um, that have been going on. So would love to have you come to that next Sunday evening from 6 o'clock until 8 o'clock in the evening. And then you might have noticed on your way in the door this morning, there's a table that has a bunch of books that look like this. Um, and this book really is um, where Jason is drawing a lot of his information or inspiration from the messages in this series on prayer. And I read through it, and I'm like, it's awesome. Like, Jason would not be able to preach this book to you or even, like, you're just getting a snippet and food for thought. And so if you want to just kind of enrich what you're hearing on Sunday mornings by reading this book, I highly recommend it. Um, and so we have those available for you. If you can't afford to purchase a book right now, take it. We just want you to have it. Um, but if you're someone's like, yeah, I would probably order that on Amazon, but it's really nice to have it here in the lobby for me, and it's convenient, and it's not a thing on my to-do list. Um, inside of every book, mine's a blank piece of paper, and also I just lost my place for something that was very important to me for later, so I'm going to reread the book again. Um, but there's a little piece of paper inside of that with a QR code, um, and it just sends you to a digital donation. Um, suggested is $15. That's what it cost us. We also have a black box on the welcome table, and you can just drop a check or cash there in the coming weeks, but take one today if you want one. We also have a connect card on your seat. We love it when you fill that out. We love praying for you during the week and hearing from you. And if you're watching online today, um, fill that out online at brookviewchurch.com.
So we're, we're in this series thinking about prayer and the kingdom of God. And um, here's what I find interesting about human nature. We pray. Like there's something in us that compels us to pray. Prayer is this confounding mystery. Like we struggle with it, and yet we do it. Um, the story of, of prayer is a story that everyone is immersed in. Like the statistics of church engagement continue to decline across the Western world. Okay, that's not true across the entire world. But across Europe and the United States, church engagement continues to be in decline. But interest in prayer, it turns out, is actually moving in the opposite direction. Like in Western Europe, which is considered to be the most secular corner of the globe today, 25% of people who mark non-religious on surveys also admit that they, that they take part in some spiritual activity each month, typically prayer. Um, Tyler Staten, the author of the book that we're handing out, has noticed the same thing about his own culture in Portland. He pastors in Portland, the church that Kate used to attend down there. And he says, um, even in an anti-authoritarian, institutionally suspicious, spiritually dismissive city like Portland, some of you are like, what? I'll read that again. Even in an anti-authoritarian, institutionally suspicious, spiritually dismissive city like Portland, the very people laughing off or condemning the church as harmful and problematic still can't help talk to God when no one else is listening. There is something deeply human about prayer. And today we're going to look at what I think is a beautiful picture of devoted prayer and worship, and we're just going to jump right in. So try to visualize this scene. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. And he and all Israel, that's a lot of people, were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. And all the people went to their homes. Okay, rewind. Seven years prior to this moment with the ark, David was anointed king, like for the second time. He was anointed by Samuel as a child, and then that didn't go over real well with the current king. And, and, and then... He's anointed again, okay, seven years prior to this. And his pathway to the throne was unconventional, to say the least, right? Israel's first king, Saul, was so threatened by David that he spent years hunting David down, trying to kill him, following, from, following him from place to place. And you go, yeah, that's one way to eliminate the political competition, right? So after Saul's death, David is anointed king again. But one of Saul's sons, a kid named Ishbosheth, try to say that five times fast, he occupies the palace and holds it by force. So David spends seven more years living in the countryside, just waiting for this imposter to stop sleeping in his bed. You guys, David waits seven years. That is a lot of time to daydream about your, your coronation. The, the celebration that will ensue when you finally take office. And it's plenty of time to plot your political strategy, which is what makes David's entrance into Jerusalem so stinking unusual. The scene that we just read was his coronation, David's entrance into the capital. David had waited years and years for all of Israel to finally be united. He's waited years and years to, to be able to occupy Jerusalem, and finally, all Israel is united under David, and this is his moment. So he plans a coronation ceremony to end all ceremonies. All of Israel is summoned to Jerusalem for this event, and they can hear the parade approaching from miles away. 
the army was marching and, and singing a song that David himself had composed just for this occasion. Okay, Psalm, tw- Psalm 24 in your Bible. Um, the lyrics go like this, starting in verse 7. Lift up your heads. Imagine them singing this as they're heading toward the city. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Now that sounds about right if you're writing a song for a coronation parade, right? But listen to the next line of the song. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Wait, what? This is a parade to celebrate the new human king, right? The new king of Israel, David. This is a royal coronation event. And David is a very, as we, as we know, a very skilled musician and poet. So he repeats this part of the chorus to, like, drive it home. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the king of glory. What? So the crowd hears the army marching and singing, and and as the procession spills over the hillside, here's what they expected to see. They expected to see a long line of soldiers and musicians marching and singing. And in the back, they expected to see the king carried on the ancient equivalent of a, like, parade float, like the, the king being carried on his throne wearing his royal robes. This is how kings did coronations in the ancient world. But what they saw was David at the very front of the whole thing dancing in his underwear. <laughs> right? Not being carried, walking, dancing, going nuts, dressed not in royal robes, instead wearing a linen ephod, okay, the clothing of a priest, and not like the, the dignified outer robe of a priest either. This was like the common undergarment of a priest. And it's as if David was symbolically saying to the people, look, I am not a king who's coming to sit on the throne. I am a priest who is coming to lead you into God's presence. But I am the least of all the priests, not even worthy to wear the outer robe. And what's being carried in the back of this whole procession is the Ark of the Covenant, right? This wooden box symbolizing God's presence. A box that, that went everywhere that went every, everywhere with Israel on their, on their journey from Egypt to the Promised Land. Like when they crossed over the Jordan River to finally enter the Promised Land, it was the ark that led the way. The ark was carried out front, causing the waters to part, and the ark was Israel's most tangible symbol for God's presence. But when things got comfortable for King Saul in his reign, he abandoned the ark in a foreign field, Because that's what we tend to do with God when things get comfortable. So in his first act as king, David hunts down the ark, and it's it's God that's given the king's seat of honor at David's coronation, and David is just a priest pointing the nation back to God. Now, every jaw would have hit the ground when David made his way down, down Main Street. But when he gets to the city square, the parade doesn't end at the palace. David had a tent set up in the center of the city, okay, a tabernacle, a tent made in the fashion of Moses's like tent of meeting, that sacred place where when they were traveling through the wilderness, Moses would meet with God face to face. This was not like some ornate temple, okay, just, this is just a common tent, and it was set up in the city center, and so feel what's happening. The result of seven plus years of waiting and planning and dreaming and scheming was this. Hey guys, what if we pitched a a tent where God could reside among us? A tent where anyone and everyone can come worship and pray day or night. Right? Nothing fancy, just a common tent right at the center of the city. That's the vision. Now, when a, like a new president is elected, they often have a, a first order of business, right? This is common in politics. Something that they want to act on immediately. Some program or project that they promised voters or some initiative that they're hoping will define their legacy. David's first act during his coronation as Israel's king was to reconstruct Moses' prayer tent in the middle of the city, not as a monument to, to, to honor Moses or to remember their history as a nation, 
but as an attempt to recenter the people of Israel on life with God as their king. So David hires, he hires worship leaders and prophets and elders to pray and worship in that tent day and night. So in his first act, you guys, what he does is he empties the national treasury on prayer and worship. Try to imagine the cabinet meeting where he explained that this is what we're going to do. Right? Imagine their reaction as he lays out his political plan for Israel. He is a king reigning during a time of like endless tribal warfare. So try to imagine the reaction of his advisors to his plan. They're like, someone's like, uh, Dave, love what you're doing with the prayer tent, man. I mean, that's cool. But are you sure you want to prioritize prayer over like everything else? over our national defenses to protect us from enemy armies camped on the hillside waiting to attack? Are you sure you want to invest everything in prayer and worship? And Dave's like, yep, that's the plan. And he did it. And you guys, it's almost like the presence of God was David's primary political strategy. Tyler Staten writes this. He says, For the 33 years of David's reign as Israel's king, Worship and prayer took place 24 hours a day. David put prayer back at the very center of God's people, and he invited everyone, men and women, slave and free, Israelite and pagan. The 33 years of David's kingship were the only time before the resurrection that there were no restrictions on access to God's presence. David's tabernacle was a New Testament reality in an Old Testament world. That's the scandal of the prayer tent. So you guys think about what he's saying. He's saying this is almost a thousand years before Jesus. And David set up a space with unrestricted access to God. He set up a common tent right in the middle of the city. And anyone could go into it. Long before David, Moses set up a tabernacle, right, with restricted access to God. After David, Solomon, his son, built the temple with restricted access to God. And it was destroyed, and another one was built with restricted access to God, right? There was, there was a curtain that sectioned off the most holy area that, 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 that only the high priest could cross, and only once a year. Like, from Moses to Jesus, there was always limited access to God's presence, except for the 33 years of David's tent. And here's what's beautiful about what happened in David's reign, His radical commitment to seeking God's presence in prayer worked like nothing before or since for the nation of Israel. David's unconventional, God-focused reign as king was the political high point of Israel any way you measure it. There was peace and safety in the city. There was prosperity in the economy. There was care for the poor and the hurting. Like a divided, fractured nation was reunified. During the the time of David, a a way of praying and living ripped a channel between heaven and earth and manifested in the broader society around it so that a city began to reflect the kingdom of God. Compared to, like, the brutality of the ancient world that ran wild everywhere else, I mean, if you read and you, you study what the world was like, it was brutal. You guys, this was a major step forward towards God's dream for all of humanity his dream of love and intimacy with his people, and their love and commitment to justice for one another. And so so to simplify the principle of, of, of David's day and sort of transfer it to our own, you could say, prioritize sincere, God seeking prayer and worship inside the church, and you get the kingdom of God outside the church. And by the church, I don't mean this building. I mean the people. Something was happening inside a tent that transformed life outside it. People not only prayed, but they embodied, like they lived out their prayers. Um, Author David Fritch writes, Through night and day worship and prayer, David established a place of continual agreement with the will of God on earth. David knew that they weren't just singing songs, but were building a throne and habitation for the king of kings to rule the land. And God was so pleased 
that he made a stunning promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So the next chapter after this whole story with the ark, God says to David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So this kingdom where God is king, this kingdom filled with justice for the poor, this kingdom where God's presence is thick among the people all through society, this kingdom will be a permanent kingdom. It will be established, God promises, forever. Now, that's not the kind of promise that reads like, so yeah, well, hills and valleys are coming, and there's going to be some really dark times ahead. But that's what happened. If you know the story, that's what happened. Like after David's reign, the the tent became a brick-and-mortar building, right? It became what? The temple. Yeah. And the, so, and it see, that seemed like, and it, like a massive step of, of progress. And for a time, it was, it, it was. It was really good. But a few generations later, by the time of the prophet Amos, things had really devolved. Worship at the temple had become empty and corrupt, and social injustice was running wild everywhere. The wealthy and the powerful commonly oppressed the weak. And Amos lived at a time when it was still, for the most part, pretty good to live in Israel. Like there was still widespread peace with other nations. And if you were born into the right class and you had the right vocation or you were able to find your way into the right industry, you could make a pretty good living for your family and live a mostly comfortable life. Like in the day of Amos, the temple was, was still active. People, people went to temple. But somehow, simultaneously, the poor and the vulnerable were oppressed. Worship in the temple didn't translate to justice in the streets. So God raised up prophets, a whole slew of prophets like Amos, to speak truth, to speak on behalf, on his behalf, to the people of Israel, to let them know that they were were straying from the dream and that it would lead to all kinds of suffering. And the prophets gave continual warnings. And that's what the book of Amos is, is all about. It's just warnings. Like if you've ever read Amos, it is just one big fat truth bomb. It is really an unpleasant read. You should go read it. (laughs) It is not a pleasant read that just like fills you with with good vibes, right? Amos is speaking to Israel on God's behalf, and he's saying, what the heck are you guys doing? You're, You're going to the temple, and you're singing worship songs, and you're offering sacrifices, and you're praying prayers, but you have compartmentalized your spirituality into a set of rituals and practices, and you guys have forgot about loving each other. You've forgotten about justice. You've forgotten about the poor and the weak and the hurting. And he goes on to promise that because of this compartmentalization, God is going to allow them to be driven into exile so that one day he can restore them again to the full vision because what's going on right now cannot be it. He will restore them to the full vision of what it means to live in his kingdom where there is deep prayer and worship that leads to love and compassion and justice. You guys, it is a pretty harsh book, to be honest. It is not a comfortable read. But what happens is right at the end of this whole thing, right in the middle of all of this negativity and judgment, in chapter 9, God makes this astounding promise of what he will do after the exile. God says, verse 11, In that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins. And we will rebuild it as it used to be. So I will create another context where pure worship and prayer lead people to integrity. Where worship and prayer are married to love of neighbor and justice. One day I will raise up the tabernacle of David. And on that day, I will begin to restore the full vision of my kingdom on earth. So fast forward now from Amos to the prophet Ezekiel. And you guys, it gets, it, it gets suckier. <laughs> it just gets more lame. It's more depressing. Okay, we're jumping ahead a few generations now. And corruption in the temple is just escalating. And, and injustice in the land is also escalating. I mean, people are just being sold into debt slavery. The red light districts are going up all around Jerusalem because people can't make a living. It's horrific. So God gives Ezekiel a vision uh, of, of what's happening. And the key line in Ezekiel's vision is this. Then the glory of the Lord departed 
from over the threshold of the temple. So Ezekiel's saying, hey, this, the temple's still going. Like, it's going quite well, actually. Like, attendance is high. The budget's looking good. There's tons of activity. There's only one problem. God's not there anymore. Right? God has left the building. So early in the story, we have, a, we have a tent with God's presence spilling kingdom life into the streets. But we also see something else. You guys, there is a way of, of doing church that keeps up the appearances of success even if God is entirely absent. And right now, we, we live in a culture that does not live the way of Jesus. Right? But it's so easy to get caught up in it and to lose discernment for what we're called to and how that differs from what those around us who do not follow Jesus feel like they're called to. Right now, we, we live in a culture that loves to empower people, and that's good, right? Our, our society loves an underdog story. We, we want to blow up the limits for people. We want to we we say to everybody, hey, you can be anything you want, right? And there's real beauty in this. This is a good thing. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But there is a shadow side to this as well. When we're constantly told you can do and be anything you want. Like, you can be great. You just have to believe in yourself, and you just go make it happen. That sounds, that sounds really empowering. It sounds like freedom. But that idea can also come with a ton of pressure. I mean, rather than feeling free, what can happen is we start, we start feeling crushed under the weight of all these expectations. They can be our spec- expectations, our parents' expectations, what we think society expects, But at the core of that vision, the weight of the whole world is on you. You can be great. In fact, you must be great. And you must make it happen. So being a a, a good person, living a good life, it isn't enough. You have to make a name for yourself. You have to be great. And if you don't, then your life's kind of a failure. And that's how it can feel, right? That's the shadow side. And to me, it's, it's no wonder that so many, like the stereotypical just 18 to 23-year-old male sitting in their parents' basement addicted to video games. Why is that? Well, part of it might be that if you can't be great in real life, you're going to have to go virtual. If you're average in real life, then man, go be great in the game for a few minutes. Get to the highest level. Be awesome. Live the dream. And then it's back to the basement in real life. You can be great. You must be great. And you can make it. You must make it happen. That way of thinking can free us, but it can also crush us. And it can lead to inadequacy, and it can lead to feeling paralyzed. You guys, it can also lead to insane levels of workaholism. Right? As, as more and more we, we worship the idol of success... We bend the knee to doing whatever it takes to make it, whatever that looks like in our mind. And if it leads to, I'm on my own, it's on me to figure out how to make it happen, then life with God disintegrates, right? And dependence on God evaporates. And guys, this happens. This happens to people. And it happens to to people who follow Jesus. It happens inside churches with church people. Tyler Staten, again, makes a harsh observation of the state of the modern church. He says, the modern church's best-kept secret is that we believe in productivity, not prayer, right? I mean, we believe in solid programs, above-average teaching, and another worship album. That's the method for success, right? There's probably less cynical ways of saying that. I I think that's true. Like, we believe in mission, activism, and outreach. But he goes on, he says, the hidden atheism of the church of our time is this, that we will busy ourselves with almost anything except for prayer. And I don't really want our our church to be like a flurry of activity done in our own strength. You guys agree with that? And I I don't think we are. Okay, this is not, and and now I'm not going to like yell at you. (laughs) (laughs) Because I'm, I'm as much a part of this whole thing as anybody, right? And I, and, and I think there are a lot of things going really well around here, like honestly really well. 
I mean, so many of us over the last three, five, seven years are learning to slow down. Many of you are developing practices of slowing, practices of quiet, practices of engaging scripture, of regular personal reflection on the things of God and the kingdom. So as a church, I think we're, we are, we're definitely maturing. But I personally, I want to grow deeper roots in prayer. And I want it for our church. I, I, I think it is, I think it really is the natural next step for us. And so this fall, we're like dwelling on this concept. You're like, are we going to be talking about prayer next week? Yes. <laughs> and, and today I want to share something that, that we're, we're going to try. And this might be a total failure, but we're going we're gonna to try it. Um, it's not going to be a, a, a total failure, actually. This is going to be awesome. <laughs> but you guys, in the evenings, um, we're going to open the church as a prayer room. Um, so on four different dates, just four different dates, we're going to open this space from 7 to 9 p.m. And it'll be a whole series of self-guided experiences of prayer with various stations. And there will be assorted activities that sort of help guide you in prayer. And you don't have to be here for the full two hours, but if you can be, that'd be awesome. So it's a sort of a come when you can, leave when you want, but the doors will be open. And many of you have come to uh, various prayer vigils we've done in the past. How many of you have been to a prayer vigil at Brookview before? Yeah, several of you. Um, those have typ typically been an hour long. And what I've heard people express over and over after they go to that is, I honestly didn't think I could pray for an hour. But with all the different prompts and activities, I felt like an hour wasn't enough, actually. And something happened in me during that time. It's hard to explain, but it was good. It was deep. It was something that I really needed and didn't even realize I needed. So these are the dates for the prayer room, and I, I really hope you can carve out space for this um, if you can. Um, you may need it more than you know. And I also want to say, you can invite non-Brookview folks. Like, this is wide open. It's wide open to anyone. They don't even have to be followers of Jesus yet. You know why? Because, guys, people pray. They do. Uh, pe people suspicious of the church and of religion, they pray. And so if someone just wants to come and, like, be prayed for, they're like, I, know, I, don't, I don't know how to pray, but I'd, I'd like someone to pray for me. Great. That'll be available, too. And so maybe some of you have a coworker, or you have a family member or you have a friend that sort of comes to mind and maybe it's, it's like just the thing they need and maybe God meets them in that. No one, I just want to say this too, no one is going to be asked to stand up and pray in front of people. Okay? That's not how this is going to go. It's a, it, it is, it, you do it as you're comfortable. Okay? But these are the dates and if, as it says on the bottom, if, if it would be helpful for you to have those on your phone, um, just text PRAY to, to the number, and those will be on your phone for you. You guys, as I, as I look back at my life following Jesus, and like even as a pastor, far too much time has been spent seeking success, however that's defined in my mind, apart from God. And it is stressful, and it's empty, and in the end, it's powerless. So I, I want more of life with God in utter dependence than prayer. I want it for me. I want it for you because that's where abundant life flows. Like I've walked with Jesus for about 30 years now and I have had seasons of deep dependence on God, like rich in prayer. I've also had seasons trying to make everything happen myself. Times I've trusted almost exclusively in my own resources. And in those seasons, while I still asked God to like bless my thing from time to time, my prayers were pretty sparse and pretty hollow. I was effectively going in alone. And here's what I see in those seasons. I see anxiety. I see fear. I see anger. I see pride. I see resentment. I see jealousy of others and a whole slew of other stuff that I don't want to characterize me. Like, apart from God, I don't like who I become. So, and I've also lived seasons of life saturated like in deep dependence on God, rich with prayer, and I know what that's like. But here's the thing. Just because life includes that stuff in one season, just because it's going really well in one season, doesn't mean it's just going to automatically continue on into the next. David did this amazing thing in Israel. I mean, he could not have been more passionate. 
and more focused on God and the kingdom and justice and love and compassion and peace and the whole deal. And then a few years later, he settles into a life of peace and prosperity and he loses focus. His, his gaze turns from God and the kingdom, from love and justice to the wife of one of his soldiers. And he took her and he got her pregnant. And then as a part of the cover-up, he had her husband killed. I mean, what a mess. So much for integrity and compassion and justice and mercy. Now, thankfully, when confronted by his friend and advisor, Nathan, David humbled himself. He admitted his wrong, and he reengaged with God, and he got back to his mission of worship and prayer and justice. But by then, so much damage had been done. Like, David fell away from God and, and God's vision for his people, and then it wasn't long before the whole nation followed. Within a few generations, their worship became empty. Injustice began to run wild. And if you read the story, it gets like really ugly and, and it's heartbreaking. And it's like, wait, didn't God say David's kingdom would last forever? And God's response to that is that one day he would restore what's broken. In fact, he would go beyond restoration of the old to do something new, something beautiful, something fuller. And this is what's encapsulated by the prophets like Amos, right? In that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and, and, and restore its ruins, and I will rebuild it as it used to be. To, to the prophets like Amos, what, what we need to get our minds around is that the tabernacle and the tent were a symbol. The, the buildings were metaphors for a person that would come one day. Another king in the line and in the tradition of David who would restore the presence of God to the people and return the people to love and justice just like David. But this king would do it permanently. His kingdom will endure forever. And of course, this leads us to Jesus. So in John's gospel, John introduces us to Jesus using a whole variety of metaphors. If you start, I, people are always like, you know, I got a non-Christian friend or someone who's a brand new Christian and they want to start reading the Bible and so where should I tell them to go? And you're like, go to the Gospel of John and they read like three sentences and they're like, I'm already lost. <laughs> right? Because John uses all of these metaphors for Jesus. Like he's the word. He's how God speaks to us. He is, he is light. He is life itself, Right? So John begins his gospel saying, in the beginning, talking about Jesus, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And your new Christian friend's like, yep, I can't read the Bible. Those are all metaphors for Jesus. They're all beautiful things about the character and the essence of Jesus. And John says, before creation, Jesus was with the Father as the Word. Before creation. But in the middle of a broken world, characterized by injustice, and this is where the story turns, verse 14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And John says, we, as in me and my friends, have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. I mean, the, the Greek word translated here as made his dwelling among us, the Greek word more simply translated just means tabernacle. This eternal person that existed with the Father from before creation, he took on flesh and blood and he tabernacled among us. He was the very presence of God on earth, John says. And you guys, that's crazy. Right, right, Glenda? That's crazy. <laughs> I mean, we should go nuts right here. That's crazy. Uh, uh, and the gospel writers, um, they use another image for Jesus. Like, they're not, we're not done with images. In fact, we don't have enough images for Jesus to even try to get to the heart of what he's like. But they say he's, he's, he's the promised king from the line of David. The one to restore pure worship and justice. I mean, Matthew makes this connection in verse 1 of his gospel. He begins the whole story of Jesus with this. He says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. And Luke wants us to see the same thing. He gives us the angel's words to Mary in chapter 1 of his gospel story. 
And he says, the angel says to Mary about her unborn son, he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And as the people watching what Jesus was doing do his thing, they came to the same conclusion and they started asking the same questions. Matthew writes, all the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? So like David, Jesus sought pure worship and prayer in the city, as well as justice for the broken and the hurting and the needy. I mean, Matthew 21, this famous scene, Jesus gets angry, right? It's just like, this is where Jesus gets a little scary. (laughs) Jesus entered the temple courts, and he drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. And then listen to the last line. The blind and lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. Those who were not welcome at the temple came to the son of David at the temple and he healed them. And John writes that his, his watching disciples immediately thought of David. They made the connection. His disciples remembered that it is written, this is what John says, zeal for your house will consume me. And that's a quote of Psalm 69, written by who? David. And David writes, 980 years earlier, for zeal for, zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. That's, that's what David's heart for God was like. He personally felt any insults that were directed toward God. Have you ever felt that way? Like you're hearing people talk about God and you hear, this is like, they say something like, like and it's just like, that's, it's upsetting. He personally felt insults directed toward God. The disciples, the disciples, they're watching Jesus. They're watching Jesus and they can see he's the one. Right? Jesus is the king to come. Jesus came to restore the tent of David, to bring pure worship and prayer and justice back to earth. Only Jesus wasn't going to give the people a place or a tent or a temple. Jesus himself was the temple. So after tipping the tables, the religious leaders, they're, they're freaking out. They're incensed, right? And they ask Jesus, what sign can you show, can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. And they replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. (laughs) And you're going to raise it in three days? John says, but the temple he had spoken of was his body, and he was raised from the dead. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. That's John's way of saying, we didn't get it. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. And so what makes this story so breathtaking is that now, after Jesus, God's dwelling place isn't a tent or a tabernacle or a temple. It is not a church building or a structure of any kind. The body of Jesus was the temple of the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself was the residence of God's presence. And now, those who trust Jesus by opening themselves to him those people can become a container for God's very presence. You and me together, we're told, are the body of Christ now. We are the living temple. God now indwells creation through, through us, through any who are willing, his people. You guys, this is all over the New Testament, and I'm not going to just quote tons of stuff at you because you trust me <laughs> and you get it. Uh, But one example is where Paul says to the followers of Jesus in Corinth, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? So, okay, so I was working on this message and I remembered a a Bible project video. And um, some of you guys, you're like, I'm having trouble following this. Um, Maybe maybe not, I hope not. But some of you guys are, are visual learners. Right, and you experience best through, through art. So I want to show you a video that gets kind of, kind of at the heart of, of what we're talking about here. Let's, let's watch this. 
If you could go back to the city of Jerusalem during Bible times, the biggest thing you'd see is the temple. This beautiful building was designed by King David and built by King Solomon, and they believed that it was the home of the God of the universe. Wait, I thought God's home was in heaven. Well, the whole point of this earthly temple is that it's the place that overlaps with God's heavenly home. The temple is where God lives and rules all creation as king. That's cool, but even Solomon, who built the temple, didn't believe that it could contain the God of the universe, right? Yeah, the building was just a symbol, and it pointed to the fact that all of creation is God's temple. And that's actually what the first page of the Bible, Genesis 1, is all about. Really? It says that creation is God's temple? Well, it doesn't need to say it. The whole story shows it. In Genesis 1, God creates an ordered world out of a dark wasteland by speaking in a series of seven days. Then on the seventh day, God's presence fills creation as he takes up his rest and rule. Similarly, the tabernacle and later the temple were built and dedicated in a series of seven speeches and seven days, after which the priest or king could rest and rule in God's presence. Ah, so all of creation is where God intends to dwell. It's like his temple. Exactly. Now, turn the page to Genesis 2 and we get another portrait of creation. This one focuses in on the land. And in the center of the land is a region called Eden, which in Hebrew means delight. And in the middle of delight, God plants a garden in which God and humanity live together. And that's why the temple was modeled after the garden, filled with imagery of gold and flowers. The menorah symbolized the tree of life. It's the place where God dwells with his people. Oh, got it. And check this out. In the temple, the Israelite priests and Levites were to work and to keep the temple in God's presence. This is exactly the job description given to humanity in the Garden of Eden. So these humans were the first priests. But instead of ruling with God, they wanted to rule on their own terms, and they're exiled from the Garden Temple. And like Adam and Eve, Israel's leaders also wanted to rule on their own terms, and they too were exiled. The temple was destroyed, and this left them wondering, did God give up on Israel? Will God bring about a new creation? Well, the biblical prophets anticipated the day when God would create a new temple with a new priesthood. That's when God's presence would fill all of creation. And when the Israelites returned to the land, they did rebuild the temple. But that temple didn't turn out the way the prophets hoped. In fact, later Israelite prophets said that this temple was hopelessly corrupt. So they're still waiting for the ultimate temple. And here we come to the story of Jesus. He said that through him, God's presence and rule was coming into our world in a new way. And he presented himself as a new kind of priest. But Jesus wasn't a priest, and he didn't work in the temple. Right. Jesus said that God's presence, his rest and rule, was filling the world through his own life, death, and resurrection. Jesus was claiming that he was the true temple. And this new temple would expand out to include all of creation. That's a really big claim. And it got even bigger. After his resurrection, Jesus said that God's presence would come to dwell in and among his followers so that they would become mini temples. Communities of people where God rests and rules. Exactly. This is the Bible's vision of the church, which is described as a temple. Not a building, but people. Yeah, like when Peter says, you all are living stones built up as a temple for God's spirit to dwell. So at the end of the story, do we ever get a new physical temple? Well, not exactly. What we see is a renewed cosmic temple, just like Genesis 1. And this new creation doesn't need a temple building because through Jesus, all creation is now the place where God rests and rules the world with his people. You guys, in David's day, humanity took a major step forward. It had a lot of steps left to take, but it took a major step forward. But right now, the presence of God is available to any and all of us. And you don't have to be in a church or a building of any, any kind because the story is that you can be the tent, you can be the tabernacle, you can be the temple. Um, Jesus said that the way it happens is pretty simple. Matthew 7, 7 and 8. 
Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. To the one who knocks, the door will be opened. And the truth is, you aren't even really the one that initiates all of this. I mean, Jesus is the one chasing you down, not the other way around. He says in Revelation 3.20, Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person, and they with me. And I just want to close with a quote from Tyler one more time. He says, The modern church's best-kept secret is that we believe in productivity, not prayer, right? I mean, we believe in solid programs, above-average teaching, and another worship album. That's the method for success, right? It's probably less cynical ways of saying that, like we believe in mission, activism, and outreach. The hidden atheism of the church of our time is this, that we will busy ourselves with almost anything except for prayer. I don't want that to characterize me. I don't want that to characterize us. But you have to decide for you, will you seek and knock and be open? And really, this whole thing's not even on you. Jesus is knocking at your door day and night. I mean, this is what, this is what be, being able to see the huckleberries is all about. Jesus is knocking at your door day and night. So will you, will you build in rhythms to slow enough to hear it and open the door? And so to close today, I, I, I want to invite you guys to stand as the worship team makes their way up. And I want to invite... And I want to invite you guys to recite together the Lord's Prayer. And if you've been around much, you know we're, we're doing this weekly. And um, we're going to keep doing it weekly through the fall. Jesus was asked by his disciples, Lord, teach us to pray. And these words were, these words were part of his response. And here's what I think. I think Jesus is up to something deep in these words. And we're going to spend a lot more time on them in the weeks ahead. But for this morning, let's, let's just recite them together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.